Hello, welcome to the 15-minute hour. Uh, my name is Corey, and today I'm joined by uh, Seraphim, uh, Calvin, and Hank, and our guest uh, from Paris, France, uh, Simeon, who is going to be speaking on uh, Platonism and Islamic thought as well as universalism. And hopefully we have a, a good conversation relating uh, Eastern, you know, Western Christianity and Islamic thought uh, on those planes. Without further ado, here's the phone call. Okay, so why don't we just start off uh, with you briefly saying um, a little bit about who you are, maybe what you're studying, what your your interest is. So just do a little brief introduction for our listeners, and then we'll start. So I present rapidly myself. I'm Semyon from Paris. Um, I have uh, a Bachelor of Arts in History of the Islamic World and a Master of Arts in Islamic Studies, as well as... Uh, as uh, uh, a bachelor of arts in uh, linguistic, especially focused on Farsi language. For those who would do not know what is Farsi, um, Farsi is Persian language spoken from Iran to, to Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and related uh, areas. Um, regarding my own philosophical and theological thoughts and schools, I would describe myself to some kind of Neoplatonism. But um, recently, I, I tried to work on, on a new way to present it um, in a way which can be, well, not revolutionary, but um, which can be changed our perspective regarding how we view substance and ideas. Um, especially if we depict the world not as having, uh, you know, um, substantial and intrins uh, intrinsic, how can I say it, um, interest, intrinsic essence, but rather um, in terms of interconnected phenomena. So, yeah, I try to, to build something up um, out of Platonism and, and Islam and regarding universalism, yeah. Uh, I'm a proponent of universalism. Um, Simeon, let me start by asking you this. Are you familiar with Hans Jonas, the Gnostic religion? Uh, not at all. So can you explain a bit about it? Yeah, so I'm just, gonna, I'm just looking for the premise here because I'm interested in the Islamic interpretation on who Socrates and Plato are in this regard. Mm -hmm. So basically, he's a Jewish scholar from the New School for Social Research, and his, his premise is that Ultimately, you know, to get past all the complexities, um, Socrates and Plato were drawing ultimately out of uh, Moses. And what, the, what you see happening in the Hellenic uh, boom of philosophy is a combination between the Jewish and Eastern thought uh, through trade routes that uh, culminated in Egyptian priest class and theology and eventually worked its way into Socrates and Plato. And I bring this point up because I'm like, in, in, for instance, in... Eastern Christianity with uh, Justin Martyr, St. Justin Martyr, you have this idea that Socrates was sort of like the first martyr for the Christian religion or a uh, commentary on the daemon that uh, Socrates was influenced by. Was that a daemon from, from God or Allah? Um, what is sort of the, I guess, in your view, the Islamic thought on exactly what was going on with Socrates and Plato? Because they seem uh, foundational both to Christian and Islamic uh, philosophy. Yeah. Well, uh, as you may expect, it's, um, Plato and Socrates are very important in, in Islamic thought. And many represent them as great thinkers first, but also for some people as models which are close to the prophetic ones. For example, um, Al-Ghazali, a famous Shuni scholar in his book on work and subsistence, taught a lot Socrates as well as Muhammad. I mean, he put Socrates in the same level of authority than the prophet regarding virtues, ethics, and, you know, um, systemic, systematic philosophy. So, yeah, for, for Islamic thought, it was, 
it was a great discovery to 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 be to be put in contact with with the Greek uh, wisdom and with Greek philosopher. And as for the daemon of Socrates, I do think that it's close to all um, Islamic thinkers describe um, the experience of revelation. I mean, you know, it, it's like a, it's like a, a spirit, a, an intuition, which um, which talks to you and gives you, rather than a literal um, angel coming to you. You know, there, there is a popular vision, uh, even among Muslims, that um, Muhammad met a literal angel. Why, in truth, um, if if you read um, Islamic scholars. Stas Ghazali and even Sajistini regarding your Shia thought, um, you may understand that it wasn't really um, an angel as depicted in, you know, uh, common culture, but rather some kind of spirit of, of inspiration and uh, of great thought, of great strength, and of great, um, how can I say it? Um, um, there is a great connivance to truth within the spirit, which inspire um, men like Muhammad, but also men like Socrates and Plato to, to produce models which are even nowadays um, emulated both by Christian and Muslims. So, so if I'm understanding you correctly, the spirit that appears to Muhammad and the spirit that is appearing to Socrates is something that more or less all men have access to. Yeah. I okay. mean, they are pretty similar in nature, but the scale of the experience is different between Socrates and Muhammad. Socrates is described more as, um, you know, a step within this, this history of revelation. He has some kind of, you know, instinctive link to the spirits, but it wasn't complete. I mean, each prophet come with degrees of, of, um, of completeness regarding the spirit, this, um, this intellect, which transmits um, beautiful wisdom and magnificent law. And Socrates was a step in it, a very ancient one. And it can explain why um, he has some difficulties to, you know, to describe it. So, so going, going from here, this, this sort of common spirit um, potentially accessible by every person, um, but especially, let's say, by prophets, you know, Socrates, Moses, Christ, Muhammad. Um, what, what do you think was the intentions of the divine in assigning Socrates and Plato and maybe Aristotle as well, um, all to the same, more or less same location in the same time period, right before, uh, you know, the coming of Christianity and eventually leading up to the coming of, Is uh, the coming of Islam? Do you think it was uh, particularly intentional uh, for them to be assigned where they were at the time they were in order to prepare the Hellenistic world for the reception mm. of that philosophy? I do think that um, this revelation experience lived by uh, Socrates and many other great philosophers helped us to, to spread uh, some kind of global monotheism because as you know, it's, um, the Greek world uh, did some of the greatest projection of forces um, which ever happened with the conquest of Alexander, which united, you know, the West and the East within um, a, new, a new entity which permitted to ideas, to concepts, to man and to, um, and to systems to travel very fast. So... In some way, I do think that the divine prepared the world to monotheism by first um, stepping in in Greece, where the mind of people were like prepared for it, and where the disposition of people were um, were like um, ready to, to to project themselves out of. Um, out of the, the small Greece uh, of ancient times. 
Right. Okay. So, so I guess jumping off from this, from the from the philosophy to the theology that's being shared in the Islamic and Christian worlds, in the New Testament we have a phrase that is that uh, death is the last enemy to die, um, which I think in many ways is is supportive of a universalist idea. Though you never, almost never, hear Christians cite this this verse. Is there anything equivalent to that in the Quran or Islamic thought that death is the last thing that dies itself? Um. I mean, the reason the Quran, the fact that whole thing shall be um, merged or disappearing in, within within the face of God, is there is a verse in Quran saying that um, there will be a time where everything, and when I when we say everything, there is no specification. It could be both Earth, cosmos, even even hell. Um, to disappear, and after that, all uh, all what remains uh, is the face of God. No, so in a sense, there, there is some kind of idea that um, hell, as an experience of suffering, um, should not last eternity. And this was a view embraced by some theologian um, among Sunnis. There is, for example, Ibn Taymiyyah. And Ibn al-Kaim, who proposed three possibilities regarding hell and suffering. Um, the first one, which is very classical, is what I could call infernalism, like hell will be eternal and suffering will be eternal. Uh, the second possibility is that um, hell will remain, but will be empty. So every source will ascend to even. And by this process, suffering and by extension, death, which, which is the greatest of all suffering, will end. And the last possibility is that hell will be destroyed with people inside it. That's the last possibility. So like an annihilation. Yeah. Um, my, my, my opinion on this, on this possibility is that I'm, I kind of uh, go for the second one because there is a very famous hadith, very famous tradition found in both Sunni and Shia hadith corpus uh, reported by a Sahaba. Sahaba is like a companion of the Prophet um, called Jabir ibn Abdullah, who heard the Prophet say that Allah will take people from the fire and bring them to heavens. So there is, there is a idea that it will directly take people who are like suffering, and being tormented in hell and just stop their suffering by raising them, raising them to, to, to Jannah, to, to even. And to, to come back to, to the tragic trajectory of the story, I think that whole motions, whole movements um, are the conjunction of or mass uh, toward a greater good. I mean, there is suffering right now. There is injustice there is um there is bigotry of course there, there is discrimination but slowly we advance toward a greater well-being for everyone so knowing this the hand of all things shall be the greater good and the greater good is um the hand of suffering but the absolute hand of suffering not just the um, the hand of suffering for some chosen or elected people, but for everyone. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it strikes me that in Islam, like uh, Christianity, the popular majority view is not that of the universalist interpretation. Yeah. Um, I mean, because, it, because it, it's, it's necessary to, to defend infernalism in the conventional discourse. But if you read uh, scholars, actual scholars who defended infernalism in the conventional sense and dive into their works, you will find out that they are some, somehow defended universalism too right. as a sign of hope and as a sign of greatness because, you know, um, not all people are ready to, to accept universalism. Right. And for, for most of, pe of people, if, if universalism is true, then um, religious commitment would be nullified 
no? And it, it would be also a justification for um, mediocre, mediocrity, you know? Yes. So, yeah, you, you have to defend. There is two discourse you have to defend. There is a discourse which is conventional for people, and there is a discourse which is a matter of absolute truth, which is for um, a more... Um, more restricted audience yes that that follows quite in line with the patristic thought along the lines of origin or nisa that even in so far this might be true it's not something that should be taught liberally um at the same time i don't know what what it is in the islamic world but in the christian world the proverbial sense of the cat being out of the bag with universalism has seemed to come to the fore in a way that it doesn't really have historical precedent um, and there might be various, let's say, even from a Marxist perspective, materialist reasons for why that is. Um, or, or, or maybe I'm wrong. Is the Islamic world also experiencing some sort of um, revival or opening up to universalism? I would say that um, universalism is present within the Islamic perspective, but it remains a kind of of thought you will only find about um, among elites you know so it's still quite esoteric people. yeah okay um i wouldn't say esoteric but more scholarly okay. i mean there is there is there is an intellectual vision of of universalism there is an esoteric vision of universalism as well uh, you can you can uh, perceive it in sufism in even in shia islam in what we call uh irfan gnosis uh -huh. Um, but there is like uh, very orthodox scholars who who are keen to defend universalism, right? But in a very scholar way, not um, not esoteric in in some kind, uh -huh. because there is sources defending it. Because the prophet himself did some some stuff that even his companion didn't understand. For example, there is an occurrence, a tradition in which he prayed. For um, Bedouins who, who didn't pray, who didn't practice Islam, who didn't believe anyway. And he prayed for them to go to Jannah. And his wife, Aisha, asked him um, if these people were like uh, not Muslim at all, would go to heaven. And the Prophet just replied to her, um, it would be the case with the mercy of God. And this tradition is found in. The, the compilation of the greatest Sunni scholar who ever lived, Imam al-Ghazali, in his Epistle of Tolerance, which is one of the greatest books um, defending both plurality of religion, of beliefs, and also universalism in, in some kind. Um, I wanted to pause here. Did any of you all have anything to add or any questions before? We, I don't know. We go on to whatever. I mean, I don't have a question as much about the universalism factor. Um, I mean, Simeon, you and I have talked about this quite a bit you know, ourselves. I, I, what I'm very curious about, and if you want to change directions, is the way in which Platonic philosophy influences you and how you see it. In, in what ways does it um, um, fit in with Islam? Because I know Corey, for one, uh, talks a lot about Plato. Um, you bring up the dialogues quite often in our different podcasts as influencing your philosophy and your theology. Um, it's very clear in a lot of early patristics that they were very influenced by Plato. Um, I'm very curious, and this is a topic that you and I haven't really talked about that much, uh, but how, in what ways, you know, you, you said that you think that Plato was uh, inspired by a spirit of, of you know the, the, a spirit of some sort that does speak to the prophets that is accessible to to people in what ways does does your reading of plato and what specific parts of plato and what specific dialogues do you think really fit into islamic thought and theology and in what ways has it influenced your own philosophy and theology that's what i'm very curious about there is so many ideas within Platonic philosophy, which is um, very important to, to my personal theology. Um, the first being um, the ladders of intellects, the hierarchy of intellects. I don't know if you know much things about it. We, you know, yeah, the, we have Dionysius Therapagite who d divides this line, the hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. So, 
Yeah, so, so there is ladders yeah. of intellect and which are a degree of perfections. And this degree of perfection can be also be used to, to prove the, the necessity for, for um, a perfected intellect, which would be God. Like you, you pass from um, a very low to no intellect to go up, 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 until to, to reach some degree of perfection within God, which is represented by God. And humans in this, in this ladders are like a step of um, intermediate state between the intellect, which can receive wisdom from the upper intellects, but also an intellect which can come higher to get a higher position and from this higher position he will be able to educate lower intellects it, it's a, it's a, it's an evolution you know it's it's like um you you receive a revelation from an upper intellect which can be you can call it like an angel you can call it a diamond you can call it anything you want it's a higher intellect and from this intellect, you are able to elevate yourself and transmit it to lower beings. It can be your fellow um, humans, can be um, something more universal, uh, as we know that there is occurrence, for example, of, of Christian sins, um, teaching the doctrine to animals, for example. So, um, in this way, I, I find this, this idea of degrees of intellect very comforting in the fact that it gives a, a, an end to things and, you know, um, some kind of sense. And this sense, as I said earlier, would be the march towards a greater good, greater betterment. And that's also why this world could not be um, in, in another form. I, I hear a lot of atheists, for example, arguing that God would have created a world where all beings only do good things and ethical actions, and that this world would be perfect. Um, but goodness and ethics are relative concepts. They don't have intrinsic existence of themselves, in themselves, for themselves. So you need to, to have some kind of progress of perfectibility to be able to, to identify both good and evil, the intellect and falsehood. So um, in this world where progress is possible, we can definitely say that it's the best possible world because it, it opens the doors of, of constant progress and um, platonic hierarchy of you know intellects can give some answers to to our goals and to the direction we go to. And the second platonic idea, which is very important to me, is um, the theory of forms, which can say a lot about um, divine science, but also pre-science, because you know God is the external specifier of anything. And there is some, some kind of, of paradox because, you know, to be able to, to create or to make something to emerge, you need first to know what you will create or what will emerge in the first place to be a, a specifier. So the theory of forms, okay, um, God is like a depository of all Jameson ideas and concepts and forms which will lead to the world. And through it, he creates the world, he generates it, and um, we can, we can, we can, uh, how can I say it? We can prove God with the fact that the world could not contain the condition of its own activity of production first and of its own specification because it didn't exist in the first place. 
so it couldn't specify itself. So we need some necessary being which contain all ideas, all forms, and all genus prior to the emergence of the world. And regarding the theory of form, I do think that um, the greater good, the salvation of everyone, is contained as an idea regarding the hand of all things, the march of all things. So, um, my own interpretation of this theory of forms would be like um, we are we are expression manifestation of perfected and already known forms within the scope of the divine and for now you and i are just parodies of this perfected forms waiting for betterment to to reach like like reflects in the mirror to reach um, the perfect balance between what we should be and what is the perfect form contained in, in God, wisdom, and science. So there is a sense of betterment, and betterment can only be taught um, when put in, in the perspective of universalism, you know? Right, yeah. No, um, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. I, I pretty much agree with you from the orthodox perspective. Um, one, one thing I'm wondering about as you're talking about this is um, in the Western world, mainly through Tertullian, but in the modern variation, uh, it's more so the Protestants, that we have this idea that uh, the pagan influence of early Christianity was totally corrupt. There's a, um, a Lutheran bishop who wrote this book called Eros and Agape, where he basically argues that Dionysus the Repogite was a Platonist pagan spy who infiltrated successfully the entire church and uh, spread all this Platonism and corrupted all of Christianity until not even Luther, like basically modern Protestantism came along and finally salvaged the church from all this paganism. Is there any sort of equivalent to that conspiracy theory uh, in the Islamic thought? Um, because Islamic, to me, is you know, as an outsider, uh, Islamic thought seems even more uh, overtly, um, in a good way, uh, consciously aware of its influence by paganism than Christianity does. Yeah, because, you know, scholars, when, when talking about the Greeks, were fully aware that they were polytheists and pagans, right? But um, there is, in the Islamic thought, um, a methodology which consists to take everything that is good and true, even if it comes from, you know, non-Abrahamic... Um, Abrahamic works. So as long as all these ideas and concepts are used to understand better the, um, the theology, the revelation, and the world, so it should be taken. And there were like a long polemics between theologians regarding philosophy um, with the question, should we um, use philosophy to emulate the Greeks is it not dangerous to use philosophy to, to prove our, our dogma and to, to rationalize it? Um, should we stick to a more literal way to interpret the revelation? And it was a long debate uh, within the, the, the Islamic circles of, of theologians. And hopefully, um, the philosophy didn't end defeated after this debate. Because, you know, there is literary schools nowadays, but they are like... Uh, very minority. I mean, uh, there is Athari school, for example, among Sunni, which rejects any uh, influence of the Greek, but <laughs> paradoxically uh, use the ideas of the Greek. For example, Ibn Taymiyyah, who is like um, uh, Athari, uh, completely rejects Greek philosophy, even wrote a book about it. But his theory of, of knowledge and science, even science, is like a copy and past, <laughs> uh, a copy and past of uh, Plato theories of forms. So when you read it, you're like, okay, you you reject Plato, but you just repeat what he said like centuries before. Like you don't invent anything; you just repeat what the ancient said. 
Right. It, it seems basically impossible to, to actually do this. And I think it's ironic within the Christian world when you see people who tried to draw this very distinct line between paganism and the teachings of Christ, because there's so many things that Christ say that you really have to give a very forced interpretation to trick yourself out of it agreeing with anything that a pagan uh, philosopher uh, thought. Um, it, it basically seems impossible. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in the idea, for example, of, of Trinity um, and of divinity developed by Christian natives is heavily influenced by Neoplatonism. I mean, you, you can read, for example, this idea of, of divinity of the Messiah uh, within the writing of uh, Philo of Alexandria. So, I mean, you, you can just um, erase the... Um, the, the patrimony of Platonism within Christianity because it's fundamental to to all we can understand Christian doctrine. Yes, it, it's pretty naive. And, and what you see, I think, with a lot of Protestants is that they want to have their cake and eat it too by rejecting the so-called total political corruptions of the early church, but still taking all these philosophies that they attached on to the interpretation of Christ's teachings. Um, even even their doctrine of infernalism, as I was saying in the last podcast, often ends up borrowing a lot from previous pagan ideas that were, for the most part, a very recent minority in the Pharisaical thought in Second Temple Judaism. The 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 way this often gets justified with um, you know Orthodoxy or Catholics or Protestants who don't take this route is say like Justin Martyr's point that the logos that Christ is manifesting by is a uh, the logos and very structure of the cosmos, therefore. If a pagan is worshiping nature, they are indirectly worshiping that logos. What would be the equivalent, I guess, in the Muslim thought, uh, the Islamic thought, uh, to to that to that concept, right? To this idea that the pagans, the reason they're getting anything right is because they're worshiping creation of Allah, or or what is there any? Well, um, there is um, to describe people. Um, before the actualization of religion made by Muhammad, because you, you need first to understand that um, the Islamic perspective is that um, from our theological vision, Islam always existed for... Um, it, it's, it's like, uh, you know, but not Islam as, you know, Ramadan and Salat, etc., but more like uh, a natural submission to God. So that's how we interpret it. Islam always existed among various people from various religions. And that's why there is a verse in the Quran saying that uh, Abraham was neither a Jew nor a Christian, but he was a Muslim. It's not, it's not saying that Abraham <laughs> said the Shahada and, and the Ramadan, etc. right? Um, it's more about the fact that Abraham um, worshipped the, the one true God. And among people who lived before the actualization of religion by Muhammad, of course, there is like um, uh, people who intuitively will worship the, the manifestation of the divine in nature, within, um, within life itself. And because, you know, in Islam, we, we reject um, original sin doctrine. No? And we talk about state of nature. We call this fitra. It's a, it's a state of nature, state of nature of man, which is like the intuition of man for curiosity, empathy, solidarity, and, you know, to worship the, um, the great God, not in, not in the most perfect way, not sometimes, well, sometimes it can be lost, but not out of evilness, but more out of ignorance regarding his own condition. So it's not, you know, polytheism is not interpreted as evil, but more about all man failed to understand correctly their inner nature. So all that, all that being said, what was the... Uh... What was the reason it, that Islam provides for why Allah waited to give a prophet to present things like Ramadan and um, praying five times a day very specifically to the peoples of the world? Was that just the ideal time and place uh, when to strike when the iron was hot to spread Islam? 
Well, um, you know, there is a progress in history. And in, in Quran, in Surah 5, verse 48, uh, we read that to each people, God gave a law and the method writ law. And the last occurrence within Muhammad's predication and prophetic mission is to finally give a writ, a method and law, which, which can be balanced and totally, you know, um, devoid from corruption and modification with time. A writ and law, um, which can be both universal and understandable for, uh, from a certain locality. So, you know, um, when, when Islam was first predicated by Muhammad, it was like the perfect time to, to, um, to actualize the region. Because, you know, for example, the Roman Empire, Eastern Roman Empire was divided between various Christian sects uh, fighting each other. And, you know, uh, Heracles, for example, persecuted a lot of, uh, of Christians in Egypt and Syria. And if you observe well, uh, the date of foundation of most of the great Oriental church, you will notice that um, these dates of creation are um, simultaneous to, to the, the rise of, of, of a new power in, in the global uh, geopolitical theater. So in a in, in few words, um, Islam came the right time where Rome was failing to, to pursue its natural mission of universalism by, for example, persecuting the Jews and chasing them, chasing them out from Palestine and weakening itself in clueless wars against Persia. And Islam just came and, you know, swallowed all this world and spread monotheism as far as India and Central Asia, areas which were, which were mainly dominated by pagans, polytheism, you know, um, ignorance. So it was the last moment of mankind's actualization of religion. That doesn't mean that uh, Christianity is false or no, that doesn't mean that. But that, just that this moment was the right moment to actualize the, the history of revelation and religion. Um, oh, sorry. All right. Thank you. So going, circling back to this question of universalism, um, it seems from what you were saying earlier, and I just wanted to clarify that there is this understanding that the tradition of infernalism as a, as a majority or popular view um, is good, even if it's not ultimately true, um, yeah. because it is maintaining a sense of adherence and submission to the majority of people who need, you know, uh, St. Benedict says that, um, when John is, uh, John is saying in the scripture in the New Testament that uh, perfect love cast out fear, nonetheless, mm -hmm. very few attain perfect love. So we need to maintain fear of God for the majority. That, Definitely. Uh, in this sense, infernalism in the Platonist sense is a noble lie of God. Uh, not unlike mm -hmm. in the Old Testament when he tells uh, Jonah that Nineveh will be destroyed or telling Isaac that, uh, or sorry, telling Abraham that Isaac will be sacrificed. God knows that this is not true, but God nonetheless yeah. knows that they're going to interpret it as true. Is that, does that mean God is lying? Well, you can look at it in a very logical way, but in a more mystical way, it's, it's the noble lie of, of Plato, right? That, that God is giving us a, a deeper truth through a lie, kind of like what Plato says art is. It's, it's something that is telling us a lie in order to tell us a truth. Yeah, and I, you, you must also understand that a liar is someone who hides truth out of um, evidence, there is there is like some harmful dimension in in in, in lies, um, which doesn't exist in what God uh, does and says in the Bible or in the Quran. This is not the same thing. Um, the way God acts in both of these books is more like a teacher. It's like a pedagogy. Uh, so infernalism is like um, a way to tame people and to make them to grow slowly and by time when they will be educated and 
grown enough, they would be able to love and to worship God without the fear of eternal hell. Um, I think we're approaching the 50 minutes. Were there other questions or comments that either of any of y'all? We still got a good 15 minutes. We do? So I left. thought we started at 45. Uh, no, I, I, there was there was a while of getting you started. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think we at least have 10 minutes. Okay, yes. Yeah, so we have 10 minutes. Um, but in either case, were there questions or comments y'all had? Well, I don't want to pivot this completely in a different direction, but I guess I might. Um, one thing that I know that the both of you two talk about, you know, from, again, different traditions, is the sort of sense of the... Um, the illusion of the self, the killing of the ego. And I know, Simeon, you and I used to talk about this uh, in, you know, conversation between us, and you are obviously very um, inspired by um, Buddha and Buddhist tradition. You're very well read mm -hmm. in Buddhist tradition. I used to push back against some of that. Um and uh, but I've kind of come around and partially because, you know, Corey has talked a lot about this, that that idea is actually true, but in a far more mystic and esoteric sense, not very talked about as much in 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 the Orthodox tradition um, that actually there is a very similar idea of the and, and illusion in of some self. areas in, of the Western Catholic tradition as well. Right. But, yeah. it, but it is I, I mean, I, even in Christianity, there is a concept of, of um, erasing the ego in the face of God. So. This is not something very new. I mean, yeah, it's a pretty universal idea you can find even in Christianity. Yeah, and and so I've been I've been more receptive to that more more recently. Um, and like again, like Corey, you know, you talk about this quite a lot, especially when you come from a psycho, you know, psychoanalytic, you know, point of view. Uh, could we maybe talk about that? Maybe uh, uh, how 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 that works in islam how that works in christianity mm -hmm. maybe we can I, i'll leave it to the two of you but maybe to discuss that a little bit that's a good question and that's and even well it's a good way to to hand this talk because um in islam there is a, a very important concept um which identify mankind not has a set of individuals in themselves uh but more like the parts of what we call uh, Adam al-Ruhani, yes. the greater Adam, the greater <laughs> this, Adam. This is Gregory of Nyssa all the way, yes. <laughs> so this greater Adam is wishing to be saved and to be elevated into, into events. He, he longs for, for, for Jannah. And we are whole parts of it, like organs, like cells, eyes, you know. And we are all manifestation of this Adam, this primordial Adam. And there is a question that I would want to ask to you. So, um, how can we conceive salvation of Adam and Rohani if not all his parts are saved? Yeah. I mean, uh, would, would Adam be, be saved if even one of his finger is in the fire? Yeah, enti entirely. No, so basically, I think this is where the West screws up because you already have Augustine just off the bat damning eternally mm -hmm. adam and eve right um in the east tradition it's not entirely screwed up it's just kind of forgotten about i mean we have gregory of nisa who's basically says exactly what you're saying the um adamic uh, pleroma that uh humanity mm -hmm. is not composed of individuals but actually parts of adam and um some of those cells right some of those parts have to go through purgation in a more intense way than others because they have to be taught a greater lesson but in either case, they will all—they're all, they're all uh, in the process of being forged back into the original uh, part of Adam to be united with uh, Christ in matrimony. Um, and the mystical uh, saints, like especially Saint Simeon the New, although you also get this tradition in a lot of Western uh, Catholic saints, like Catherine of Siena, for example, um, that we we aren't speaking entirely metaphorically when we talk about the actual marriage between Christ and the church and that the church uh -huh. is actually the completion of Adam of what Adam was meant to be before he was split before between mm -hmm. male and female in the garden of Eden that we are returning to the original Adam complete without division um and generally the church the sort of church fathers that talk about this are either somewhat obscure 
or the when they talk about this, no one ever really talks about this, those phrases or paragraphs where they're we're mentioning this. But to me, I read this and it's like, this is the center of salvation. This is the center of soteriology and orthodox thought. But you almost never see it mentioned. And this is exactly what David Bentley Hart brings up in his book, That Also Be Saved, that we were we keep forgetting or overlooking what Gregory Nisa is talking about in the Edemic Pleroma, the blooming forth of God's divine being through the reunion between Adam and Christ. Um, so it's very much on that same wavelength. It's just very in the shadows or esoteric, um, not really talked about in, in that tradition. But I entirely agree with you. It doesn't really make sense unless it is all reunified and crowned in Adam. I mean, exclusive salvation wouldn't make sense if all men are in fact parts of the same entity wishing to be saved. So in some way, I can understand why um, in the exoteric sense, um, you will not have much discourse about it. That's, uh, well, because as I said earlier, infernalism is necessary, absolutely necessary for people. So um, I know it can be kind of um, frustrating to, to see many people embrace infernalism with, you know, this idea of, of primordial Adamic entity in, in head, but um, but I do think that in the hand there is great wisdom in 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 this you know in this dichotomy between conventional discourse, which is meant to be a pedagogy, and absolute discourse, which is a matter of truth, and in which most of religion finally um, joined together. There's there's also a very direct existential relation in the, in an everyday way where the the question comes up of what is the experience of those in in paradise uh, knowing uh, those who are damned or their loved ones or whoever it, regardless of even their loved ones on earth because the idea is that your state in paradise is this universal love of man um, mm-hmm. it seems kind of absurd and I, I none of the answers to this are very satisfying to me like you get Lombard and Aquinas who say that the uh, those in heaven and paradise take pleasure in a, a sort of Schadenfreude in the in the punishment of the damned and then you get oh, these yeah. really bad protestant answers that god just memory ripes which is like god is actively creating ignorance which just seems totally antithetical to the christian god or any you know actual abrahamic idea of god for that matter um it's like <laughs> there there's no there's no uh on intellectually honest solution to the to this problem uh, unless unless well, you go um, universalist right but but I think you have to keep in mind that when, for example, Thomas Aquinas writes that um, the saved take pleasure in the torments of, you know, of, of people who aren't saved and who are craving for God in hell, um, it's not necessarily to be to be taken um, um, as a statement of truth. But uh-huh. rather as a statement of pedagogy, as I said earlier. So I see. Yeah, um, there is no paradox into defending, um, into defending such vision, and at the same time, in your inner, inner self, uh, to be universalists. And well, I, I've read a lot of Thomism recently, and. It's a posterior judgment, but I do not think that Thomas Aquinas would um, would think openly what uh, what he wrote if he knew more people of um, of diverse faith and opinion. I think uh, universalism can be built in. Um, um, can be built better when there is alterity, you know. And what I appreciate a lot in, in Islam is that when it expanded the first time, um, it encountered various religions, ranging from Hinduism to Zoroastrianism and Mazdianism, Buddhism, and it had to compose with all this faith and to produce something, a discourse on this face. Why? 
uh, where this face, at the same time, so beautiful and true, but also, in some way, uh, false. So they they had to to develop a lot of of books, and you know, um, I think that it's a shame that we we don't translate more works of uh, of the Islamic world because there there is beautiful books about Hinduism and Buddhism in uh, in the Islamic tradition. Uh, books of studies and books of reputation, of course, but uh, also attempt to reconcile tradition. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I kind of look forward optimistically, and I say optimistically with emphasis. Uh, the 21st century is sort of being a recreation of like the golden age uh, of Islam, where you had Christians and Muslims communing together uh, in, in conversation in a very peaceful, diplomatic way yeah. that was sort of destroyed. And, and that the 21st century will be this uh, era of all these new translations coming into all the world languages of all these various theologies and, and looking at each other and this uh, explosion of alteriality uh, like, like it was in that golden age. But uh, I don't know if that's going to be the case. <laughs> but that, that, there's so much potential for that to, to be the case, right? Your statement uh, looks like a lot what uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin said. Um, he, yeah, he, he said he, he talked about it in his book called "The Human Phenomenon." Uh, when he said that um, with globalization and modernization, more people will be connected together, sharing ideas, sharing concepts, sharing hopes, sharing um, their the idea of um, of the best theology or the best world, and from this encounter, um, we can expect the rise of um, well, not the rise of a global religion, of course, uh, but the the rise of a new discourse or on religion and more acceptance, more tolerance, and more understanding between people, um, without killing our own particularity, because of course. Um, when, when I say that, when I recognize that there is, for example, um, uh, truth in, in inner Christianity, for example, it's, it's not to say that we should whole merge our religion and to create some new religion. No, um, it's more like uh, a recognition of, of a way for God to, to guide us in various paths and to um and to permit us to 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 be rich from this diversity for example in quran um uh, it says that god never intended to to create one world religion one one people one mankind united by one religion and that diversity is wanted and loved by god and that and that what matters it's it's to run towards the greater good and as I said earlier, the greater good is, well, in the first place, mundane betterment with times, cooperation with human growing, uh, mastering of science and understanding of, of the universe and his environment, but also in the spiritual realm, uh, the salvation of everyone. Yeah, and there is there's a balance there too, because you don't want to go in this chiliastic, you know, um perfection of the world by man's means uh you know route either which i kind of sometimes fear they might be going towards i don't know i can't really speak very authoritatively but there's definitely a sense in which you know for everything that is terrible about industrialism and modernity and, and modern technology the sort of silver lining is precisely that it, it grants this possibility of communality in a in a good sense of actually sharing religious views but uh, or philosophical ideas, but uh, again, I'm kind of I'm just by nature very cynical, <laughs> but I can hope nonetheless against that cynicism that might happen. Um, we are more or less at the 15 minute hour. Were there were there final closing comments from anyone? Well, I don't have a closing comment, but I kind of have a closing question that may drag us over for a few more minutes. But I think we can allow it. Um, I was thinking about this throughout the podcast, but particularly in the last few minutes. Um, you know, there's a troubled history between 
Islam and Christianity. And I, I, I was thinking about this you know, during the podcast and recently, you know, um, there is, I think of Dante describing hell mm-hmm. and he describes in his city of hell that it is filled with many mosques because in Dante's idea, you know, the, the, the opposite of Christianity, you know, what was hellish to, to someone of his time was Islam. That was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you look at C.S. Lewis and his portrayal of Nar- Narnia and the, uh, I forget what they're called, but the, the the Eastern world that was very much against God and against Narnia was very clearly inspired by, um, you know, Islam and, and the, yeah. you know, the, the Arab world. Then you see in, you know, um, uh, America here, we're still over 20 years later, have a very reactionary um, image, you know, uh, of Islam uh, regarding 9-11. And, uh, you know, there's still there's still a lot of people who are just immediately uh, write off Islam as some sort of uh, evil because of because of that. that, that a, a moon cult. That cultural what the Protestants call it. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The cultural trauma of, of that event over 20 years ago. And then I know it's particular for you, Simeon, because you, you live in in Paris and, um, you know, here you are a very faithful Muslim. You're also a born Frenchman. And I know that in Paris, uh, there were, uh, a, a series of attacks. And then at the same time, there was uh, a, a Greek Orthodox, I believe priest, uh, if I'm not mistaken, who made an attack and pretended to be Muslim writing off of those series. Uh, so there's, and then I know that in, in your politics, I'm not, I know you're involved in politics. I'm not quite quite as aware, but I know that this issue comes up about Islam and its influence in Europe. So, you know what? But that hasn't always been the case. And there have been times there have been times in history in which there seems to have been a really great um, communication between Christians and Muslims. And there was not this animosity. And there was actually um, a lot of fellowship between these two religions. So I just am curious to hear, you know, both of your thoughts on on what the what the relationship should be between Islam and Christianity and the Western world and the Muslim world and and uh, you know what that hopefully could look like looking going forward. Um, it's very difficult to respond to this question because it's a very political question. Uh, yeah. Because you know, uh, most of the animosity we we saw in history were mostly driven by either political or economical motives. Um, so in the field of theology and religion as themselves, we can try to build bridge of understanding and to, to share our common points to, to, to try to, to establish uh, a policy of good neighboring regarding um, regarding um, alterity. But at the same time, we shouldn't forget um, the importance of politics um, in these matters. And you know, when there is states, when there is uh, a group of states uh, representing a civilization, um, uh, such human construction want to extend, that's natural. And with the expansion, when you meet alterity, um, it somehow um, transforms the perspective of cooperation in, in a perspective where there shall be one dominated party and one dominating party. And this is very problematic. But I would say that this question is mostly about how we view community and how we view statehood and all we view the projection of statehood and civilization outside its border. So should we build this projection and there is a scope of cooperation, no coordination and or just, you know, focused on, on a more ancient conception where um, state projection were in fact uh, imperial attempts to, 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 to rise. So it's very complicated to, to, to solve this problem, but I'm very hopeful to the fact that um, in the following centuries, there will be less and less 
influence of political alterity in favor of um, the rise of some, well, it's, it's maybe a bit pretty naive, but um, the rise of some human village where, where people recognize that there is difference, but that these differences are the occasion for discovery, diversity, and growing knowledge and cooperation. So that's my opinion. And I do, I do understand that it may be a bit naive, but uh, yeah, that's what I hope for for future. But it's it's very political. There will be no solution if um, politics politicians don't move themselves. And as for living in Paris as Muslim, I, I would say that it's um, uh, it's not that complicated because you know people here are in Paris, especially are globalized people. So um, when you live in such a village, you are like, um, well, you, you don't build your identity regarding a very specific community which crystallize um, alterity and aggressivity and, and, and conflicts, but rather you try to, to gather people regarding more complex stuff, such as uh, or you conceive society, or you conceive the social contract, um, what you aspire for for you and your neighbor. So yeah, it's more. I mean, religion do not play a very important role here in society because you know France is very secular and have a long history of. Uh, well, I'm not very proud of it, but persecuting religious people. So um, religion here is very very discreet. And people, people make um, an important care to not to hide it, but to not talk much about it. Um, I guess my view on here is, is still pretty cynical. Um, I think as long as we're in the reins of mammon, in the reins of the rule of this world, um, he favors either this cosmopolitanism without any borders, without any boundaries, um, ultimate production of capital, and the total uh, annihilation of differences to make everyone this, you know, so-called global homo blob, or uh, absolute war and destruction at all costs against everyone who's different than us. I think God grants uh, ages, you know, these golden ages where He permits us a glimpse into the heavenly kingdom where we can have these conversations, and and they sort of die out and they continue to remind generations of what could be. But I think that's a very rare gift to those who are born in that time, which may very well be a time we're coming up on. I don't know, but uh, I don't think it's something that can be sustained very long. Well, uh, does anyone want to add something? Did, did that uh, answer well, your? Well, actually, sorry, what? Did it answer your question? Um, yeah, <laughs> that should, did answer your we, question. Um, yeah. We have we have one final closing question for you that has been very much on the mind of our host Calvin here, and he really wants to ask you one last question, if you don't mind, Simone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure. When I first learned where you're from and where you're living, I knew that the main question I had to ask: What is your preferred way to prepare the traditional French dish, French fry? Ah, <laughs> um, for French fries, uh, well, you have to take the right uh, kind of potatoes. And firstly, here we take mostly charlotte. I don't know if you know this this kind of potatoes. Yeah, so so you have to take the right kind of potatoes first. And well, I, I think to cut them, you know, no, in not in very thin ways like can, you can see it in some fast food but so you uh, like the thicker cut yeah yeah like like a bigger cut a more uh, rectangular shape you know and also um do not put a lot of oil when you when you cook them because uh well french usually love their their potatoes in in oven not 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 cooked with oil you know uh, as you can see it in fast food, so we 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 love to eat French fries um, cooked in oven. It's very different, but um, 
I think it's as better, as good as even well, if not better, than uh, what you can uh, what you can taste in in America. What condiments or sauce do you recommend uh, serving with them? Um, depending on the meat. Um, but ketchup. Oh no, no ketchup. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can serve them with. Uh, Mayonnaise is a good is is a good sauce, but true mayonnaise, like when when you're not mayonnaise in you can find in industry, you you have to to add some mustard, you have to add some, um, uh, well, or mayonnaise is very. I I will send send users the recipe. It's it's very easy to do, um, but not ketchup. We we don't we don't use ketchup for fries here. <laughs> and and what do you? Um, what do you call them in yeah. France? What what I'm sure you don't call them French fries. What what do you call them? Frites. Frites. Yeah. Frites. Okay. Frites. It's, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's 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 like literally fried. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I think. Well, thank you for answering. I think that, that has covered all the topics <laughs> we <laughs> wanted to discuss today. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank oh, you, Simon, for for showing up. This was a very uh, enlightening discussion. Yeah, I really. I want to personally thank you, Simeon, because uh, I know I, I I pressured and teased you all day to come on, and and I appreciate you doing so, even though it was inconvenient for you. you know, I, I I did I did a very French thing because you know in France people don't like to to work and to be moved, and you know they, they like to just rest and to be taking life easy and. When they are lazy to do something, they say, oh, uh, je suis indisposé, meaning uh, like uh, you're feeling not so well and you can't do anything. So <laughs> we always find a reason to not walk or, or to not come to, to <laughs> some stuff. To but, hopefully, but hopefully I always fulfill my words and <laughs> I, I, forced, I forced my Frenchness to, to, to be, to be coerced <laughs> by it. Well, as a Colombian, I, I, we have a very similar uh, Let's heritage. Let's just say as like non-American, so. non-German. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we put our flesh into submission. Yeah. Well, he was actually, Simeon was just telling me because I was giving him a lot of shit for saying, for being this way. And he said, actually, us French are, are a lot more productive than the Germans. Right. Yeah. And I, in, and in, I was surprised. In, uh, in, in one hour, we produce more activities and um, wealth than the Germans. Yeah, the wow. Germans are. Or rivals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the Germans. <laughs> offers, offers reference for comparison in G- is Germany. <laughs> but but the Germans like uh you know making it look like they're very busy, you know, like Americans, you know, like, oh we have yeah. all this work to do, you know, can't do anything. <laughs> uh, but be assured that if you come in France here for one year, <laughs> you will you you will end up like uh like well, you will you will be transformed into some some Frenchman. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you will I'm not already, like I'm to already walk. halfway. <laughs> <laughs> you you will be t- you will talk about us about philosophy and and politics, and yeah, that's very French. It's complain also. We'll have to come to France for a year then. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Simeon, so much for coming on. I hope. Uh, to have yeah, you back again you. sometime to talk yeah. about uh, these things more. Uh, I we, I know we all have some ideas in mind, so I'll keep you updated. But thank you so much for taking the time mm-hmm. and talking with us today. Thank you as well. We'll see you next time. Au revoir. Yeah, see you. Au revoir.